So uh, glad you guys are here. Um, man, this is surreal. The last time I was in this building with you guys on a Sunday morning was like February 23rd, which is crazy, of last year. Um, never did I th think it was going to be like a full year before we start Sundays again, but so glad you guys are here. And uh, so as, as I was thinking about what to talk about for our first series back, um, I was thinking of uh, how are we going to start Sundays up again? What series should we do? And uh, I knew we needed something that brings us back into focus with our mission, which is making disciples. And so we also need to speak, though, to what's happened the last year as well. And so I don't know about you guys, but um, this past year has exposed many weaknesses in my own faith. And so we, we can think we're doing so well, right? And then church stops meeting and community becomes more difficult and all we are left with is ourselves, God, and our Bible. And that's pretty much it, is what it has felt like. Now, you would think that when the church is stripped away, or some elements of the church are stripped away, that Christians would cling even more to their personal relationship with Jesus, as we say. Uh, going for long prayer walks. I pictured myself going for these long prayer walks and reading the Bible for hours at a time, like journaling a spiritual novel is what I thought it might look like for me. And, but this is not how it looked. I haven't completed my spiritual novel yet. But for me, the last several months have been very uh, spiritually foggy. I sit down to read my Bible or go out to pray, and my mind just wanders and just feels distracted a lot of the time. That was always a problem before 2020, by the way, but even more so, I think, in the last year. And so instead of really focusing on prayer, I feel like I just start to think and then overthink and overanalyze, and maybe you can feel, uh, relate to that. And it turns out I'm not alone. There was a recent study done that showed at the end of 2020 that daily Bible reading was down for many Christians, and some, some of that can be attributed to just the upheaval of, of 2020 and even part of this year. But it also shows, I think, a really important principle that the less we engage with the church, the less we engage with our Bibles. The less we engage at church, the less we engage in our own prayer life and our own time with God. So before COVID, many might say, you know, my relationship with Jesus is, is this personal thing. I don't really need the church. I've heard people actually say that exact statement. But this isn't true because we need community to grow personally and I hope, my hope is that you've come to realize that in this last year especially. Maybe you're also someone that you're kind of like, you know, I really haven't missed it that much. I mean, a lot less drama in my life. Maybe that's you, but I'm glad that you're back in here today with us. Megan Hill, she writes, studying scripture in the company of God's people whets our appetite for the rich feast that awaits us every time we open our Bibles. Sometimes going to group or being a part of community, um, when I sh go to my group, which is supposed to meet on Sunday evenings, but it hasn't really yet because of all the COVID stuff, and, uh, but when I feel, I'm just feeling like I don't really want to go, or I just feel discouraged, like I'm not really wanting to go that particular night, um, but when I go and I hear scripture said through someone else's eyes, it, it always gets me, and, and that's how community is supposed to work, where you... God's word is supposed to be a communal thing. Where, and you and I need, for our own encouragement in our faith, we need to hear 
God's word through someone else's eyes and see it through their eyes because that's what encourages you in your own faith. So reading and studying God's word is meant to be this communal thing. And so whenever we can't do this in here, it affects how you do it out there. And so I hope you've really missed this. So last year revealed how much we need this, but also showed me how weak I am in my own faith, how imperfect I am as a Christ follower. Now, I know whenever you hear uh, the word disciple, I don't know what images come into your mind, but what comes into my mind is I instantly picture this row of disciples just following along with Jesus in, the, in those sort of ancient settings that we imagine him in with those disciples. Um, the pictures that we think of in the Gospels, uh, them spending time with Jesus, hanging on his every word. But I want to remind you that those disciples had a lot of issues. I mean, you see those all throughout the New Testament. I find great comfort in that, knowing that um, you see a lot of personal struggles with the disciples. You see it in the Gospels. You see it later on as some of those men wrote scripture. You see their own personal struggles come, coming out, being worked out as they write those words. So the series we're going to start today is for regular Christ followers, just like you and I. I think many of us have this idealistic view of discipleship. In, in your mind, you have this picture or image of what discipleship looks like, and you feel like you can never quite get there. You never quite attain to whatever that ideal might be. But maybe true discipleship, there's a guy named Jared Wilson who wrote this. I don't have a quote on the screen, but just listen to this quote. He says, Maybe true discipleship is believing God has a plan even when I'm afraid he doesn't. Believing God loves me when I feel no one else does. Trusting God's doing something good even when life seems pretty terrible. Following Jesus even though I don't feel like it. Maybe that is what real discipleship looks like. So there are two traps that we can fall into when we start following Jesus you become a Christian, you surrender your life to Jesus, and instantly you have these expectations. Or the, the expectations are placed upon you, maybe from the outside, maybe in your own heart and mind. But either directly or indirectly, we begin to learn what it means to be a good Christian. So when I think of my own upbringing, if you guys saw the church I was raised in, you, you might ask the question, like, how does, how does anyone's faith come out of that place being still intact? And it's just by the grace of God. But they had these things at my church, and you guys know we, we give money to the church. We, we tithe money to the church. Well, they had this tithing envelope that looked kind of like this. And if you can't read what's on that thing, and it would be in the seats in front of you. And so not only would you be asked to give money, which is something we all should be doing to the church, but it would have this list of things you could check off that you did that week. And you can't read this if you're too far away, but... This is like you check off that you're there at the church, you brought your Bible, your Bible's been read daily. That's not true of me this week. And I studied for a sermon. Um, lessons studied, giving, worship attendance, how many people you contacted that week to share the gospel with them. And this is what you would do at my church. Is you would check these things off. And put that in the plate. And someone's keeping, I guess, tabs on this. Some, I don't know who did this, but someone had a job of keeping tabs on this somewhere in the church as to how good of a Christian we're all being as we attend this church. So for me, early on, there's this, like, direct communication that this is what you should be doing, how you should be living. And if you're not, then you just don't measure up. 
I remember being told by a teacher, I was in a, this private school, we had a Bible class every day at the school, and I was in seventh grade, and this teacher stood in front of the class and said to us in a Bible class, if you don't remember the date of your salvation, then you probably aren't a Christian. And I was terrified. I walked back to my locker in between classes, and I looked at my goofy digital watch. I was looking at the date, like, okay, what is today's date? I'm going to do this one more time. And so I prayed what, the prayer, right, the salvation prayer, one more time just to make sure I remembered the date now. And then I forgot that date, you know. But there's like this pressure that, um, and I began to think, you know, if, if I don't remember the date, what if I'm not saved? Like, who would forget such an important date? I mean, what would we say if a husband forgot his anniversary, right? We might say he's not a good husband. So I felt like I'm not a good Christian. I don't recall the date. Maybe I'm not a Christian at all. So there's this unspoken or spoken pressure. This is what it should look like to be a good Christian. And my early Christian faith was born out of fear of not doing something right. And I imagine many of you guys might be in the same boat. So the two traps that we can fall into early in our faith are this. Either we become a meticulous rule follower beating up on ourselves when you and I fall short, or we just say, I can't live up to this, forget the whole thing, and just bail on your faith. That's a trap that many young believers, the two, the two traps many of them fall into. And I bet over the last year that many have been tempted by the second option, just to, I can't do this, let's just, let's just bail on the whole thing. So we have to avoid these traps. So we don't beat up on ourselves, and we certainly don't bail. We don't turn away from God's word. If you feel you don't measure up, we don't turn away from God's word. Because you open the scriptures, you're going to see a lot of people with a lot of struggles in the scriptures. If you feel like you don't measure up, just take solace knowing that that's kind of the story of every single one of the biblical authors. Some of them were even murderers, and God used them to pen his words. So who is the person that's most difficult to measure up against in the Bible? Maybe, maybe Paul. You might say that about him. But look what Paul says about himself. Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. We'll look at verses 18 to 23. Could someone turn the AC up like one degree? It's just like a little chilly in here. There's, it's back there at the back, maybe over there. Just one degree, maybe two. Romans 7, verses 18 to 23. And I believe this, these words are written um, after Paul's conversion, not before. He's describing the Christian faith, what the Christian faith is like in Romans 7, verses 18 to 23. It says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do... What I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in, within me. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So Paul is describing himself this is as a Christian. This is what he's describing. He's a believer, and he's, he's saying there's this conflict in him. I think these verses highlight the reality that we can, 
we can't ever seem to get our act together. The, the Christian life is always going to feel like that to us. Paul says, I do things I know are bad, and I avoid what I know to be good. I find it strangely encouraging to know that Paul struggled just like you and I do in the here and now. I think these verses are a good summary of how many of us have lived over the, la the last year. You know the good that you want to do in the inner being, but you just find that you can't do it. You find it difficult to do. Look back at verse 18, where it says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So as believers, we desire the right, but we can't do it in our own power. So you might say it like this. When we sin, we are responsible. You and I never get to say, oh, so-and-so made me do it, the devil made me do it. Like, we're responsible for our sin. But when we do good, we don't get to take credit for that. That's kind of the weird thing about the Christian faith is when you sin, you and I are fully responsible for it. But if you do something good, it's, this is God, the Holy Spirit, working in you, empowering you to do these kinds of things. You can't take credit for it. So when you and I sin, we have to own it. So if you don't understand this aspect about yourself, you'll drive yourself crazy. Always vacillating between feeling good and feeling defeated and feeling good, feeling defeated. We have no ability in ourselves to do what is right apart from the Holy Spirit. So whenever we sin, we can run to his grace and mercy. But whenever we do good, we give him credit. If we get anything from Romans chapter 7, it is this. This is a quote from Jared Wilson again. He says, Jesus is looking specifically for the people who cannot get their act together. That's who he's on, like, a mission to find, which includes everybody, of course. But this is who he wants living on mission in his kingdom. You ever think about this question, like, why would God choose someone like Paul? There had to be more people qualified, right, that didn't come with all the drama or the, the backstory and, and people that would have been quickly trusted by other people because Paul wasn't. He thought he was going to kill him. That's what he used to do. But someone like Paul who spent his life persecuting Christians. So why would God use someone so controversial as that? Well, I think God did that so that every person would know that salvation is a miracle. This is the work of God. And, and you know, Paul seems like this extreme case, but apart from Christ, everyone's an extreme case, right? You know, God saving Paul is a good reminder for us today that my salvation, your salvation, is a miracle of God. It required the same miracle to save Paul as it did to save you and me. But in order for us to grow in salvation or in our sanctification, I want you to understand a concept. This is called the art of soul maintenance. I want to spend a few moments talking about that with you. So what does soul maintenance look like? Well, first of all, it's to recognize the war within. It's to recognize what's being talked about in Romans chapter 7. In verse 22, it describes this battle between your inner being and in your members. And so if you're, if you're a Christ follower, there's a conflict between what you want in your members 
and what you want in your inner being. And those things were in conflict with each other. i never forget uh, about 20-some years ago now when I was in seminary. I was at Dallas Seminary, and there's a guy named Dwight Edwards who came and spoke for a week. And you have no idea who that guy is, but he was a pastor in College Station. And he was like the great, 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 whatever number of greats, grandson of the Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards from like the 17th century, right? And he had this lineage of pastors in his family. He's kind of this, you know, well-known guy in College Station around the country. He comes to speak at DTS in a chapel service, and he taught us Romans 7. I'll never forget that sermon. It was very profound. It really helped shape my understanding of this passage. One of the most helpful talks, he described this conflict that even he, is, he experiences in his inner being and his members. He says, there's the thing, he framed it this way, he said, there's the thing, my inner being, he says, in my members, I, it's, it's like I'm answering the question, okay, what do I want in my flesh, in my members? And that might be the moments where you're tempted to watch something or look at something or date this person or date that person that you know God doesn't have for you. And so that's, that's like your flesh at work. That's in your members. You're desiring certain things. You, really, you want those things. But then he said, in my inner being, the question is, what do I really want? Like deep down. And he said, what I really want is to be a faithful and godly man to my family, to my God, to my wife, to my kids. That's what I really want. That's the inner being. And yet, what's tragic and sad is that man, a few years later, was caught in an affair with his secretary, tragically, and really did a number on the church he was pastoring in College Station. And so what he wanted in his members won out. So, so the man spoke truth, of course, and he described the conflict that you and I all experience, but what he wanted in his members won out over what God had for him in his inner being. So every day we need to recognize that we're in this battle between what we want in our members and what we really want in our inner being. And recognizing this, I think, keeps us humble. But here's the issue, is that many of us think that spiritual growth is like this ramp or like a ladder. So when my kids were younger, they loved the game uh, Shoots and Ladders. Any fans still? Still a fan? Kind of, yeah. But it's great for kids because uh, it requires no skill. It's total luck. They can beat their father over and over again. They love that. And uh, in this game, of course, you climb, you climb, you climb, and then in the split moment, you slide back down to the bottom. And if you and I begin to view spiritual growth like climbing a ladder, if we see it that way, then the moment you get to the top, you get prideful about your godliness then you just slide back down to the bottom. That's what happens to us in the spiritual life. You might say it like this. The more we grow spiritually, the less holy we will feel. Now, some of you begin to feel this way, and it makes you just want to give up, throw in the towel. And so no one ever gets so advanced they no longer see their sin. An irony of the Christian faith the more we grow, the more you will see your sin. That might sound like a depressing thought. But recognizing this is necessary for continual soul maintenance. So recognizing there's this war within us is what keeps you engaged in the fight. 
The second principle I want you to look at here is what does soul maintenance look like? It's daily preaching the gospel to ourselves. We'll unpack this more as the series goes on, what that looks like. But if you read the Psalms, this is what David did. He would preach to himself in those Psalms. So we don't just go hear sermons, you and I at church, but we use God's word to preach to ourselves and to preach the gospel into our hearts, reminding us that we're no longer under sin's penalty and no longer under sin's power. So if Romans 7 highlights the problem, then Romans 8 provides a solution. Romans 8, look at verses 8, uh, chapter 8, verses uh, 1 and 2. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So as followers of Jesus, we recognize this we're within, but this can't lead to condemnation, you see. You see, Romans 8 is like the antidote to Romans chapter 7. Romans 7 describes a problem. Romans 8 describes the solution, which is the gospel itself. So what does Paul mean when he says we are set free from the law of sin and death? There's one idea that young believers, I think, need to understand. It's this principle, that Jesus died to set us free, not only from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. And the power of sin, being set free from that, informs your present reality. It doesn't mean you don't struggle. It doesn't mean you don't have issues or hang-ups or those kinds of things. But God has set you free from the power. You no longer have to obey sin like you once did. You've got this new power in you, the Holy Spirit at work, that can help you say no to sin. And so that doesn't mean you don't struggle, but we are no longer slaves to it. So one thing we're going to start doing each week is I'm going to bring leaders up on stage to discuss what we've just talked about. Um, so Chris and Leah, come on up. And she has a baby Graham with her as well. So congratulations, by the way. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah, you've got a baby. Please don't fall. Um, so weekly, we're going to um, just throw out some questions. Since you guys can't do your table discussions, I'm just going to ask them some questions. They're going to respond. Um, they have had no warning what these questions are. No, I'm kidding. I gave them to them like two days ago. So um, you guys can take your masks off, by the way. Y'all are married, so, you know, you're good. <laughs> he puts it back on. Um, all right, so we'll see how much time we have for these questions. But so what are some things this past year uh, has exposed about your own faith? going first um oh 2020 we talk about that what did it expose about my faith uh so the the last part that you're going over talking about the inward being really is uh is what i found that was most affected within my faith because when i first looked at the question i was like how was my faith affected i was like eh, you know i still believe in jesus like my faith hasn't been affected but then I had to ask myself, what is, the, what is at the heart of the issue of my faith? And it was like, well, it's, it's right there. It's your heart. And so just like all of you have seen and all over social media and everything, it's everything going on from whether it was you believe in COVID or you think COVID is fake, whether you believe in wearing a mask, whether you think the government's trying to control you through your mask, whether you think, uh, you know, Trump was the president, the world is over. Biden's the president, the world is over. Uh, whether it's, you know, 
anything, whether you believe in Black Lives Matter, whether you think it's the worst thing, whether you say all lives matter, whether you think it's the worst thing. Uh, going through all of that and seeing all of that on social media uh, was really wearing on me personally. And with not gathering and not being in community, I see everybody's opinions out there. And so I'm being worn down by nothing but opinions and being outside of community. Sure, we did the Zoom thing, and you know, Zoom is a good gift of God, but Zoom is, man, it gets tiring after a while. <laughs> We did, Robert was part of our Sunday school, so Evan and Catherine, uh, we did Zoom Sunday school for eight months till Christmas break. Oh my gosh. It got down to there's only three people showing up, and I'm like, guys, we're going to quit. Uh, yeah, the five people in this room and Sandy. And it was like, yeah, guys, we're not doing this anymore. We need a break. Uh, but there was that community, that, that personal getting together that was missing where it's like, okay, I'm not just looking at your opinion of something, but I'm actually communing with you. We're actually discussing what we think and also bringing the Bible in it. Because oftentimes when you get on social media, whether it be Facebook, Instagram, uh, TikTok, whatever it is, we're always looking at somebody's opinion and judging them based off of their opinion. And my heart issue was that, well, I hated you no matter what your viewpoint was. Even if you agreed with me, I found something <laughs> to disagree with you about. And for me, all of that started coming to light in me, and I was like, what do I got to do about this? And it was funny because last week uh, when Chase was doing his sermon, uh, he used Psalm 46. At the end of Psalm 46, it's talking about, there's talking about all these wars and everything and what God will do to all these nations to let them know, hey, I'm in charge. And at the very end of it, he tells you, be still and know that I am God. And I was like, hmm, that, that verse came to mind. And I was like, you know what? I'm not really being still because right now I'm hating my brothers and sisters and I'm not even in community with them right now. So something is wrong. So I gotta take a step back, see what God is actually saying or trying to teach me. Look at scripture and be like, hey, uh, what's really wrong is your heart. It's not everybody else, even though they may be wrong and may be right. Really what's wrong is you. So you gotta take a step back trust God. Anything, Leah? You're good. <laughs> Next question I want to ask you guys is we talked about how less engagement in community uh, leads to less engagement with God's word personally. So why do you think we tend to respond that way? I'm really afraid I'm going to hit him in the head with this. I already poked him with the envelope out there. So we did Zoom for Sunday school, but we've been back in our small group since I think May. I was trying to remember when David Richardson sent the email. Um, and so I've been thankful to, I said I, that was constant in the chaos. So Graham is one of the second of five babies that will be born within nine months of each other. But then we've also had, so we've got to celebrate that. Um, but we've also had the death of a parent and the death of a grandparent directly from COVID. So kind of walking through that with people literally from, from birth to death. Um, so I've been really thankful for our small group this summer, but I think Scripture tells us we're made for certain things. We're made to know God, and we're made to be in community with one another. And I see that community is where my sanctification is lived out. So I can be really good at reading the Bible and interpreting it on my own, and it be so completely off base until, one, you live with another person. You think you're a good person, and then you get married. So you learn, or then you have a kid. So there's those lessons that are learned. But you, that's where we get to flesh out what Scripture means with one another. And not only hey, I think you're looking at this wrong, but 
hey, you say that you believe this. Why aren't you living out this fruit of the Spirit? Or they can call me on some of my um, hypocrisies. And I've just learned a lot of my friends don't know Scripture. They're, somebody sent me a sermon. It was horrible. It was not from this church. So bad. And I was like, okay, this is not something that I can respond in a text message. I need to have this conversation with this person face-to-face. Well, she asked me in text message what I thought. And she didn't like that the pastor said, it was about the devil's work in the world, that she didn't like that it said that we were um, followed the prince of the power of the air that was once at work in the sons of disobedience. She's like, I didn't like that he said that. I'm like, that's the only thing that he pulled from scripture. Like, if you, like, if you would read Ephesians 2, then you would know that that was direct, like, that's the only thing that wasn't his opinion in that scripture. Um, and then you said this, I hadn't even thought about it until you were up here when you said that um, seeing scripture through someone else's eyes, like in, like, it, I'm speaking for Ashley, but it has been so great for us to be in Ephesians on Wednesday, and we've had two weeks in a row where girls were like, oh, wait, and they had these huge enlightening moments, and not only did they remember it that Wednesday, but the next Wednesday when we had them share it with the girls, they were even more excited, and this is my third time studying Ephesians in a calendar year, so I'm like, what is God going to teach me? that was foolish of me because he has taught me so much through you guys. So you think, oh, we're the leaders. We don't have anything to learn from you. That's false. You're part of our community too. Um, So I think that if I am not in the word, my community will call me out on it um, in a loving way, not a harsh way. But that then there's a responsibility to the other people in my community to know the truth of scripture, to be able to say, hey, I love you and you're not living this way. Or I'm sorry that that is upsetting to you, but that's actually what the Bible says. Um, so we've been, we've learned that uh, this year, this is what I said, we've learned the discipline of joy and of seeking God's sovereignty just this year. Because um, there's been a lot of times, it's like, is God even at work? What is he doing? Um, and the people that we sit with on Thursday night, including Robert, Robert comes to our married small group <laughs> because... <laughs> The single small group was meeting on Wednesday, so we're like, come on, Robert. So he is there, and we love it. Um, but different voices allow us to see different things, and I think we've learned the discipline of joy in seeking God's sovereignty. What were some of the uh, misconceptions that you guys had early in your faith about what it means to be a good Christian? A lot. <laughs> uh, so... I was a good kid growing up, and that's what I thought it was all about, was, okay, you, you didn't drink, you didn't smoke, you didn't chew, you didn't go with the girls that do. That's a really old saying, guys. <laughs> it's from, like, the 80s. I was born in 87. It was even before then, so. But anyways, uh, what I thought was, like, okay, I don't hang out with non-believers. I don't do all these bad things. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. Uh, but I, I really funny story. I basically got confronted with this one time. Uh, this was my first job, so I'm probably about, mm, I'm 18 at this time. And a little preface, I'm wearing a white shirt and black pants. It's a dress shirt and dress pants. So some of you are already like, oh, I know who wears that. Uh, so one of my coworkers comes up to me and is like, hey, you want to go hang out with us at such and such place? I'm like, no, I'm good. I never hang out with my coworkers. I just go there, work, go home. Don't even talk to them, whatever, guys. Um, so then he starts asking me, okay, he's like, hey, I've never seen you drink a soda before. I'm like, Dr. Pepper all the time. I'm, I claim to be a Texan. But uh, so then outside of that, he's like, hey, do you do this? No, I don't do that. Do you do this? No, I don't do that. Do you do this? No, I don't do that. Oh, you must be a Mormon. I was like, wait, hold up, guys. <laughs> hold up. Hold up now. 
Uh, I don't believe that kind of stuff. Uh, so it kind of is, is eye-opening to me that, hey, you're trying to be really good around all these people, and they're not going to be attracted to the gospel because you look like you're perfect, and nobody likes somebody who looks like they're perfect or acts like they're perfect. And that's what I thought it meant to be a Christian. Hey, I got to look great. I got to look good. That way people would look at me and want to be like God and want to follow God. And I'm just like, no, I'm a little hypocrite over here. And so let's just say the next week I went and hung out with my coworkers and started talking to them and stuff. They're like, hey, you're not bad. You're actually a pretty cool guy. And it's like, <laughs> maybe. So another question. Uh, we talked about these two traps we can fall into. So beating ourselves up. If you if you fail or also just bailing on the faith altogether so when in your life have you struggled in, the, in these ways so this question I think was tricky for me to answer because I would say that I have bailed on the church but I bailed on the church while still going to church which I think is really scary um, that I so it wasn't an out-and-out -out rejection of like I'm not gonna go to TBC anymore it wasn't at TBC it was when I was in college mainly um, but I still went to church. I still went through the motions. I still knew the words to say. Um, I still looked like a Christian. And that's what terrifies me for some of my friends. Where I'm like, I mean, the scripture tells us that. There, there will be people on the day of judgment that call Jesus Lord. And he's like, I don't know who you are. Um, there's security in that if you are a believer that we aren't in that situation. But that's that was a hard question for me to think through that it wasn't out and out rejection. It was just relying on myself and others for uh, my decisions and for my identity. And that you can go to church and not be part of the church and not belong to the body of the church. Um, and that's a really, really scary, it's a scary thing when I think back, I'm like, man, I could have done a lot of damage because I was doing these things in the name of God, but I was nowhere near um, being a follower. And that part of what he talks about in preaching the gospel to yourself is that the work has been done. I don't have to go through the motions. I don't have to try to earn my salvation. But the scripture is also clear that there are good works and bringing glory to God that I should be doing from that. So I've gone to church most of my life, but I have not been a Christian most of my life. So we had talked about how this idea, the more, the more we grow spiritually, the less holy we're going to feel. So how can we embrace this idea without it leading to depression or despair <laughs> so we'll say early on I was kind of like yeah I'm a great kid I haven't done anything wrong or that bad or anything but then after being confronted that's kind of like one of the turning points in my life is being confronted by a coworker who's like hey is this what you are and it was kind of like oh it's one of those light bulb moments uh, but then I start to realize what's really going on in my heart I mean, guys, I have got a lot of secret sins. Some of the, some of the, the guys I've told, I've talked to my guys about this. Uh, I've had a lot of bad sins and everything. Uh, and I tell people, you know, there's a lot of people I've hated. The Bible tells me, you know, if you've hated somebody, you've committed murder. And I'm like, guys, you would not believe how many people I have actually murdered in my heart. Or it's like, oh, if you look lustfully after a woman, you've committed adultery. I'm like, man, that's a lot of adultery in my heart. And so I'm, the more I'm getting in the scripture, the more I'm understanding, hey, you're, you're not as good as you thought you are. Matter of fact, your duty really stinks. And it's like, no, I thought it was great, you know, but, but the more I started understanding, there's where that tension comes in. Well, if I know how bad I am, why don't I, why am I not in despair? Why am I not like, oh, this is the end of the world because, you know, 
I'm horrible. I'm, I'm completely and utterly horrible. Paul even, I, I can relate to Paul when he says, I am the chief among sinners, meaning I sin a lot more than the rest of you. Uh, and I'm like, man, Paul, I don't know. I'm going to give you a run for your money. <laughs> Maybe. Um, but there is one term that I, that I came to learn in studying scripture. Uh, does anybody here take statistics? Statistics. Hard word to say. In, in math, anybody take statistics? I haven't because I don't math. Um, but there's a, there's a term used in statistics that is called imputation. It means to take the value of one thing and give it to something else to make that what this item was worth. And so there's a, an idea within Christianity that uses the term imputation. It's that we have, God has taken Christ's righteousness, the value of his righteousness, and he's placed it on us, that we are this valuable to him. He has taken that righteousness and placed it on us. And so I can look at myself and be like, hey, you know, I am completely horrible. I am the mud of the earth. Uh, Paul uses really strong language when he talks about that, and maybe a few swear words when he uses it back in the Greek language. The Bible's not PG, guys. Um, so, but when we start to understand how God views us, you know, you believe that Christ came, he died, he paid for your sins. God has taken his righteousness. He took your sins, all your filthiness, and placed it on Christ. Took his righteousness and placed it on us. This is how God views me. He views me through Christ. And we talk about viewing things through a certain lens. Like when somebody's in love, they we talk about, you know, you got some rosy colored glasses on. You view this person through these. Uh, so it's like, it's kind of like that, but God's looking at us through Christ and what Christ came and did for us. So instead of me just looking at myself saying, woe is me, and I'm a completely horrible person, and I should just be in complete despair, it's that, no, I can look at myself and say, woe is me, but God is good because he's looking at Christ, and this is the work that Christ has done for me, and he has taken my place. And it's such a relief that God doesn't look at me like, and dirty little pile of dirt. We're going to end on that note because uh, we're out of time. So we're going to miss the last question, but I want to make sure I get these students out of here with our sort of new way of picking people up and stuff outside. So give them a hand for doing this. They did awesome. <laughs> Brand new, full-time parents, and they were like, yeah, we got it. We're good. Um, I'm going to pray for you guys, and I'll dismiss you guys kind of by section so that we're not all going to crowd the lobby. Let's pray together. God, thank you for uh, today. Thank you for the gift um, of just having us ourselves back in this building together leaders and students together. Um, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that, um, as, as Chris talked about, this uh, imputed righteousness that we get when we place our faith and trust in you. And even that faith is a gift from you. And God, I pray that um, uh, as these students, we know so many of them have walked through uh, so many life things the last um, 12 months. And some of that's been just what everyone's been going through, but some of that's just been very personal stuff, very personal to them. And God, I pray that whatever those things are, I pray that, um, that these next few weeks we can begin to walk through those things together. They can feel the sense of community, that we uh, rejoice with those who rejoice, we mourn with those who mourn, and they can feel that sense in the body of Christ. And I pray, God, that um, if they don't know you, they would cry out to you for salvation. Um, I pray if they do know you, that they would 
continue to stay committed to community and committed to their walk with you, recognizing that um, that uh, we are all in this uh, situation together, Father. And uh, we pray this in your name. Amen.